Well, those were the violent. <laughs> Only 40 episodes. 40 episodes of this podcast were devoted to the seventh circle of hell. We have been in this circle. If you are following along at the rate that I'm recording them, we've been in this circle since the 28th of April of 2021. And here it is, the middle of October. We were a long time with the violent. I realized I took a month off because my dad died, but still, nonetheless, that's four and a half months with the violent. That's a long time. Last episode when we started the violent was episode 62. Now, what is this episode 103 or something? What I'd like to do in this episode of the podcast, Walking with Dante, and hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, in case I didn't say that already. What I'd like to do in this episode is I'd like to look back and do a big overview of the seventh circle of hell, the violent, which has gone on from Canto 12 all the way through Canto 17 of Inferno, six big cantos that truly expand the nature of the poetic project our poet is attempting. So no passages here. Let's just step back and look at where we've been. If you think about these cantos, 12 through 17 as a whole, and stand back, you can see certain structuring devices that make them one unit. For example, early on in the cantos, after we come down the scree-filled slope and find those who have been violent against their neighbors, Dante, our pilgrim, and Virgil get astride a centaur and ride along the boiling river of blood. When we come out to the end of this, they get astride Garion and fly down the cliff to the eighth circle of hell. Early in the Cantos of the Violent, we have a moment astride, and at the end, we have another moment astride these figures. In both cases, the centaurs and Garion, the figures seem slightly reticent, uh, Garion more so than the centaurs, but everybody seems just slightly reticent to let our pilgrim and his guide be astride, more increasingly so, increasingly malevolent from the centaurs to Garion, and I think that's probably on purpose to form them together. If you also think about the way the cantos are structured, you can see that, in fact, the cantos are structured on a Crete program. Crete, the island of Crete in the Greek Isles. Where, when we come down that scree-filled slope in Canto 12, way back there, sliding down it, who do we pass? But the Minotaur, who lives in the labyrinth. What happens in the middle? And where is the labyrinth? On Crete. What happens in the middle of these cantos? We get a long discussion of the old man of Crete, who provides the waters of hell, as it were. This statue inside a mountain in Crete. And when we come out to the back of the Cantos of the Violent, we get a reference to Icarus. Who was Icarus? Ah, Daedalus' son. And where were they imprisoned? <laughs> on Crete, because Daedalus made the labyrinth and then got imprisoned lest he tell the secret of it with his own son. So the Cantos themselves have a Crete 
program or a Crete structuring device. This brings many things forward in the Cantos, including the notion of Crete as kind of old school, old land. And interestingly, that we have a kind of juxtaposition throughout the Cantos of the violent between the antique world, centaurs, various antique figures like Capaneus with the Siege of Thebes, uh, contrasted with modern figures like Brunetto Latini and Jacopo Rusticucci. So we have antique and modern figures, let's say, more easily amalgamated or pushed up against each other than perhaps we've seen elsewhere in Inferno so far. Dante seems to be more comfortable mixing the antique world with the modern world, and perhaps there's part to be played in this of the Crete program, since Crete so represented the antique world. Let's look on at other ways that the cantos are structured as a whole. In the early parts of the cantos, we see those violent against their neighbors and mostly, as we discussed, sunk up to their necks, chest, heads, hair, etc. in the boiling river blood. Mostly, as we discussed, these are tyrants, people who tried to gain political control or highway robbers or plunderers, great plunderers. And these people are paired with the court intrigue of the suicides. If we see the plunderers and the tyrants from the outside, then we see the inside of the court with Pierre de la Vigne and the suicides and his troubled life in the court in Sicily. So we get this kind of court methodology, this court iconography in the early parts of the cantos of the violent. And then when we come out to the back, we get three different motifs. We get the motif of poetry with Brunetto Latini. We get the motif of politics with the three Florentine heroes. And we get the motif of finance with the usurers. In a sense, in a strange sense, all of these are ways to try to control the world. The tyrants, the court intrigue, and then ways to make money in the world, poetry, politics, and finance. And in the middle of this, we would find the, the fulcrum of Capaneus stretched out on the sands and the old man of Crete. So how do I say you have modern court problems? You have modern ways to make money, poetry, politics, and finance. And in the middle of that, you have a mythological figure stretched out on the sands, and you have Dante's own myth-making of the old man of Crete to provide the waters of hell. It seems to me that that's balanced in a certain way so that we will watch the structure of the cantos as they proceed forward. Over the course of these cantos, we have seen a distinctly changing notion of our pilgrim. He has become more assertive, if still afraid. He has gone off on his own to see the usurers. And slowly, as he has talked to Pierre de la Vigne, as he's talked to Brunetto Latini, as he's talked to the Florentine heroes, he has been gaining a voice for himself and becoming more assertive in his questioning of the damned. And in like 
manner, we could say that we have also seen a more assertive role from Dante the poet. It seems as if the poet is taking control of the poem in various ways, creating his own mythologies, the old man of Crete, and changing mythology to match what he needs happen as in Garion, creating a beast from potentially mythological and perhaps biblical sources, but creating the monster he needs to get them off the cliff. I think that what we're seeing is a growing trust, ongoing trust in the artistic vision of comedy that both the pilgrim and the poet seem to me to be coming more and more centered as the cantos of the violent progress. We should not forget that the cantos start with a minotaur on that scree-filled slope. How many times can I say scree-filled slope? And I said to you, we are descending, the minotaur, to the labyrinth. And in fact, we have had many labyrinths inside of these cantos. We've had the labyrinths of the suicides, the labyrinths of Brunetto Latini, the labyrinths of Florentine history, the labyrinth that is the figure of Garion. We have had labyrinths galore, and we should never forget as we descend into the seventh circle that we are going past the Minotaur, so we are going into the labyrinth itself. And we should not be surprised that several times our pilgrim's stance becomes complicated, either by the use of rhetoric uh, with Pierre or by the use of fame as a motivational tool for writing with Brunetto. These form traps or potential labyrinths into which our pilgrim and thereby behind him, our poet, could fall. And I think this is intentional. I think we are meant to see the seventh circle as a series of rhetorical, poetic, political labyrinths. Many people find their way out of the labyrinth through violence, by suicide, by blaspheming God, by blaspheming nature, by blaspheming art. They try to make sense of the labyrinthine nature of human relationships through violence. Our pilgrim seems to be choosing other ways and seems to be finding himself at odds with fame as a motivation, with a historical renown as a motivation, with court approval as a motivation, with banking as a motivation. He seems to be dismissing various ways to find his way in this world as a pilgrim in exile, find his way out of this labyrinth, and in so doing, we're watching the development of that character of the pilgrim and potentially the poet behind him. This entire canto has been controlled by flow, by Phlegathon, the river, the boiling river of blood, which comes round the circle in which the violent against their neighbors are sunk or the plunderers are sunk. It comes down through the wood of the suicides, although we don't know about that until we hear Virgil mention it later. And then they walk down the channel it makes with those violent against God. So the whole canto has had flow as it's what structuring device, this flowing stream. And I don't think that that either is a mistake. I think that that 
flow, that ability for one sin to bleed into another, for violence to take so many forms in scholastic reasoning. I don't think that's all a mistake. I think we're supposed to see this as part of a larger problem of, well, how shall I say, the hydraulics of sin. That is one thing flowing into another with out the strict demarcations that we saw early on. Now, it's true, there are strict demarcations here. There's rocks, there's rivers, there's forests, there's sands. There are strict, you know, terrain demarcations here, of course. And yet, all along, we're constantly reminded that there's a thread flowing through it. And once we get down onto the sands, it's very hard to see how these are three separate circles. It seems like three separate ways to be on the sand with the burning snowfall that is stretched out like Capaneus, running around like the homosexuals, or sitting there trying to wave the flames off with your hands as the usurers. It seems as if that circle is the most flowed together or has the least demarcations in it other than the positions of the sinners itself. So I have a couple more questions to ask giant overviews about the circle of violence itself. Here's one, and I'm going to tell you right up front, I don't have an answer to this. This is something that you are free to ponder. I have pondered this quite a bit and come to no set conclusions. Why is the boundary between heresy and violence a slope Whereas the, the boundary between violence and fraud, a cliff. What's the difference? Is there a way in which heresy goes over the edge and slips down into violence as opposed to violence comes to a kind of a hard stop and then we have to go down the cliff on Garion's back and we end up in the circle of fraud? Why is it that one down is sloping and one down is a cliff I couldn't get down on my own and a hard demarcation? It's an interesting problem just to think about in terms of the symbolism. I think he's trying to set down details that are full of symbolic and even allegorical import. So what is it about the two different descents, the descent at the beginning and the descent at the end of the circle of violence? Why those differences inside of it? I don't have any answers to that, like I said. I thought I'd just pose it as a brain teaser and let you think about it a bit. We can also see a changing nature of sin and the pilgrim's involvement with that sin. We have two different modes, how shall we say, modes of exploration inside of comedy. One is the, for lack of a better word, travel literature. You're walking along and you're noticing things. Oh, look over here. Here's so-and-so. Here's so-and-so. Here's so-and-so. Right? That's the violent against their neighbors, which starts out the circle of the violence. And then that's the usurers at the end. While one of the usurers does speak to our pilgrim, there's no long interaction as with the other sinners. These two, as it were, travel literature pieces, looking as if looking at animals in a zoo, these two pieces bracket the big conversations that go on 
inside the circle of the violent with Pierre de la Vigne, between Virgil and Capaneus, between Virgil and our pilgrim about the old man of Crete, between our pilgrim and Brunetto Latini, between our pilgrim and Jacopo Rustacucci. These are large conversations of personal, philosophical, theological, and we might even say, given the word in Dante's day, scientific exploration. They are full. They are difficult to pull apart. They are rife with problems, as opposed to just walking by people and looking at them. And of course, as you well know, those are the two modes of writing so far in Inferno. You can have the look and see bits, which is like the avaricious and the prodigal. Oh, look, there they are rolling their rocks around. Or you can have the personal exploration bits, as with Francesca, in which you stop and you talk to a sinner and you explore some personal space. Or the same with Fadonata. You explore some personal space. We can see here it seems more deliberate because the tour literature bracket the more internalized meditations that occur in conversations inside the circle of violence. It's another way that the entire circle is put together. And I have one more question for which I have no answer. It's a trope that the pilgrim takes part in the sins of hell. That is, when he gets around the lustful, his own feelings get out of control. When he gets around the gluttonous, he becomes a glutton for more knowledge. When he gets around the angry, he gets angry and, you know, gets Filippo Argenti torn bit from bit. When he gets amongst the heretics, there's maybe, as we discussed, a little bit of fudging about personal responsibility there. There's a way in which a long-standing tradition in which you can see the pilgrim as complicit in the sins of hell. I'm not sure I totally buy it as a modeling structure, but I do think it's partly there. So here's my big question. What violence does naming the comedy, the comedy, do to the text itself? After all, the text, comedy, is named in the circle of the violent. And is there a way that behind the scenes, in a kind of mind-blowing meta format, our poet is tweaking our noses and doing violence to the text itself by naming it in the circle of the violent? It's a curious question, and I don't think I have any direct answers to it. There is a way in which calling this poem comedy does do violence to it. It limits it. It sets it. It sets our expectations. We now know amongst the genres what we should expect out of this poem. We know what comedy is from ancient Rome. We have an idea of now where we're headed. We come, in fact, to the end of the 17th canto. And as I said, we have a minor comedic ending when Garion lets them down at the foot of the cliff. We have a minor mm, things work out. And now we can go on in the face of what will be the larger comedic ending way at the end of Paradiso. We have a minor comedic ending here. But still, saying the name of the work, comedy, especially given its name, that it's a genre, like naming your work tragedy or epic, especially giving it that kind of name, you are 
changing the text. You are fundamentally altering my expectations of the text as a reader, and you are fundamentally altering how the text text itself will be written in the future. So there is a way that naming comedy comedy in the circle of the violence does violence to the text that is being written. I realize that's super meta, that's super mind-torking and up on some graduate level of exploration, but just think about it for a bit. Make yourself a cup of tea, sit down, think about that, think through that question of what kind of violence does naming do, and is it intentional that the text is named in the circle of the violent? So that's the overview of all of these cantos, 12 through 17. I wanted to just skate along the top as if there were no rough parts, as if everything just made complete sense, which it doesn't. As you know, we've been here for a long time, 40 episodes. So clearly there's tons of interpretive knots here. And yet at the same time, it's important to step way back and see us come down that scree-filled slope, past the Manator, see the centaur, see the river of blood, see those who have been violent against their neighbors or have plundered their neighbor's property like Attila and others, see the suicides, see those who were suicidal with their own property, that is, they spent so much and squandered so much that they were actually property sides, property sides, something like that, to come out onto the burning sands to see the blasphemous, those violent against God, those violent against God's child nature, the homosexuals, and those violent against nature's child and God's grandchild art, that is, the usurers, all before the great beast of fraud breaches itself on the precipice wall. That overview is worth a long look because it helps you see comedy itself. And while we're stopped here, go all the way back to the neutrals or all the way back to the wood with the three beasts and look at the sweep of where we've come because we're at the halfway point of comedy and we are about to descend to the eighth circle which will challenge all notions of what's being written and how it's being written. In fact, it will begin to question how exactly do you write a comedy if the reason you're writing it is not to get famous. So subscribe to this podcast. Come back. Give it a rating. Let me know what you think. You can find me on my own website, markscarborough.com. You can drop a comment there. All the comments are open for all the episodes. We can have conversations there about what you're hearing and what you disagree with or what you do agree with or what you'd like more explanation for. You can DM me on social media, particularly on Twitter. And otherwise, I will see you back here for the first bits of fraud on the podcast Walking with Dante.